Hello, and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 12, Pope Gregory Confirms Papal Authority. Crowns and Constitutions returns after a summer hiatus, and it is my intention to resume bi-weekly episodes as much as possible in order to keep on track. Ideally, we will cover the time period between the Norman invasion in 1066 and the aftermath of the Magna Carta in the early 13th century. I don't actually know if this will happen, but that is the goal. Now, recall that in our prior episodes, we spent not an insignificant amount of time talking about the role of the church and church officials in the development of Western Christendom, primarily in both England and France. There were really two aspects of the growth and operation of the church that we focused on. First, the role of church officials within the feudal system that gradually developed over time, as well as the development of canon law. We saw that the church corporate structure itself integrated itself quite seamlessly within the greater patchwork of medieval authority, while the canon law was organized and developed in order to address situations having some connection to the church's spiritual leadership and guidance, particularly concerning family life, marriage, and even governing certain types of contracts and property disputes. This situation with the church was so thoroughly intertwined with the everyday social and political life, from the powerful nobles all the way down to the lowliest serfs. But this contact and interaction was mostly on the local level. And this was true even though, from its earliest days, many argued within the church that the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, served as the spiritual head of the church with universal jurisdiction and authority over the entirety of the church as the successor of St. Peter upon whom Christ built his church. But practically, with a few notable exceptions, the Pope could not operate as if this was the case. This was primarily an issue of technological gaps and collapse of infrastructure after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. As we saw, the commercial roads and Roman infrastructure essentially collapsed in Western Europe, transformed primarily into a local agricultural-based society. This meant that lines of communications, which may have once existed and would exist again in the future, were not available for several centuries. This situation necessitated, as we saw, a much smaller, localized-based patchwork of authority spread across Western Europe, where only a few kings managed to secure wider and more expansive control over others, such as Charlemagne. Local kings in England were more common before consolidation under the House of Wessex, and the local nobles managed to secure their own power in France, even against the monarchs of the time, again with the notable exception of Charlemagne. Without the ability to communicate quickly over far distances, maintaining control and authority was almost impossible. Well, this was the problem the popes in Rome faced as well. While maintaining nominal authority, the local archbishops and bishops and abbots and monasteries practically maintained exclusive authority and control over those Christians within their boundaries. If one needed an appeal, uh, a disputed church matter, the highest court one could appeal to was the bishop or the abbot. This situation, as you can imagine, made it difficult for the church in Rome to maintain a consistent set of rules when it came to governing the church, 
and it even seeped into the teachings and practices of the faith itself. Sadly, this also opened the door for more opportunities for corruption, both financial and moral corruption, among the clerics of the church. There simply was just a lack of efficient and effective leadership across the board to keep things in line as they should have been. Well, after several centuries of this decentralized power structure, uh, although it had managed to grow and spread across Western Europe, an important player enters the scene. His name is Hildebrand. Hildebrand, who would one day become Pope Gregory VII, was probably born around 1015 on the Italian peninsula. Born of humble origins, Hildebrand made his religious profession in his early years as a Benedictine monk at Rome and eventually became the chaplain for Pope Gregory VI. During his travels, he made contact with Bruno, who was a bishop of Toul in France, who would be elected to the papacy and become known as Pope Leo IX. It was under Pope Leo IX that Hildebrand was created a cardinal subdeacon and appointed administrator of the patrimony of St. Peter's. Immediately, he began to stand out as an excellent and an efficient administrator. He was also trusted to fix problems by that Leo identified. When issues such as the collapse of monastic discipline would occur, Leo would send Hildebrand to the abbey to clean up the mess and restore order. This is exactly what happened with the monastery called St. Paul Without the Walls in France. After Leo died under the subsequent papacies of Nicholas II and Alexander II, Hildebrand was elevated to the office of Archdeacon of the Holy Roman Church and then Chancellor of the Apostolic See. Throughout this time, his reputation and his power increased. It was during this time that now Cardinal Hildebrand was instrumental in reforming the process of papal elections. Before the year 1059, there was no standard process for electing popes. Often the predecessors would play a significant role, but so did lay emperors and kings. After 1059, the role of electing a new pope was left solely with the cardinals of the church. Hildebrand played an important role in transitioning to this new method of electing the Pope. And it were these cardinals that elected Hildebrand, who took the name Gregory VII in 1073. Now, we have not talked much about the Holy Roman Empire after the death of Charlemagne, but one of the vestiges of Charlemagne's power remaining by the time of Gregory's election was the custom to have the emperor assent to the election of the Pope. In this case, Emperor Henry IV did assent to Gregory's election, and it would be the last time an emperor would ever do so. Gregory lamented the state of the church upon becoming pope. In a letter to the abbot of Cluny, a monastery known for making efforts to reform corruption within the monastical life at the time, Gregory wrote the following, quote, The Eastern Church has fallen away from the faith and is now assailed on every side by infidels. Wherever I turn my eyes, to the west, to the north, or to the south, I find everywhere bishops who have obtained their office in an irregular way, whose lives and conversation are strangely at variance with their sacred calling, who go through their duties not for the love of Christ, 
but for motives of worldly gain. There are no longer princes who set God's honor before their own selfish ends, or who allow justice to stand in the way of their ambition. And those among whom I live, Romans, Lombards, and Normans, are, as I have often told them, worse than pagans or Jews. Unquote. Clearly, then, for Gregory, a reform was needed. A lot of reform, and reform he did. One of the biggest problems in Gregory's mind was exactly the situation discussed in prior episodes and earlier in this one, and that is the secular influence and power that secular rulers held within the church. With the development of the feudal system, as you recall, bishops and abbots were not only spiritual fathers, but often played an important role in the feudal system as nobles or lords over great estates. They operated just as a layman lord would operate his domains, which included entering into feudal relationships with vassals, while at the same time serving as vassals themselves to hire secular lords. This situation gave great leverage to the lay lords over the clerics because they could make demands of their clerical vassals. And in practice, gave such lay people, and I'm talking about the lords here, effective control over ecclesiastical functions, which is just a fancy term for church-related functions. This was true even down to appointing priests in local parishes, not to mention having a direct say in the election of bishops to various episcopal sees. Now, this situation was entirely unacceptable to Gregory, and shortly after having been elected to the papacy in 1075, he decided to assert his authority over the universal church and declare independence from any type of secular control. Now, out of this effort arose what historians typically refer to as the investiture struggle. This refers to Gregory's efforts to take back control over the appointment of bishops from the kings and emperors, who were lay people. And then the subsequent conflict that came as a result of it. The term investiture coming from the process of investing the bishops with their sign of authority as bishops. Now, the reason why this was such a problem for the lay monarchs at the time was that under the feudal system, the bishoprics themselves often control large, wealth-generating estates. By retaining the power of appointment of the bishops to their ecclesiastical office, they would often retain or gain the right to receive revenues or other benefits from these lucrative estates. It wasn't so much that powerful royal laity insisted on controlling who would hold the title bishop, it was everything else that went along with the power of appointment that was such a concern. Now, having said that, there was something special about Charlemagne's dynasty that evolved over the course of a couple centuries into what would become known as the Holy Roman Empire. Recall that Charlemagne was actually crowned emperor by the Pope. Along with his royal titles and authority, Charlemagne and his successors also maintained a certain religious function, even though they were not clergymen. While a coronation was not a sacrament itself, as in the official seven sacraments of the church, it, it did carry with it a sacral or holy honor that gave the emperor an extra sense of spiritual authority or leadership over the people. This interlocking mix of secular and spiritual authority 
dominated medieval Europe and was an integral part of Western Christendom. While there is no indication Gregory sought to dissolve the closely knitted bond among the church and her royal faithful, there was nevertheless a concerted effort to draw back to the church from these monarchs, and in, per and in particular back to the papacy, certain customs and functions, especially when it came to administration of the church. It should be noted as well that this situation where secular kings would assert ecclesiastical authority to some degree over church functions was never something officially accepted by the church. In other words, Gregory's efforts in the investiture con controversy should not be considered an official change of church policy, but rather an effort to restore the proper balance and relationship among clergy and secular rulers to their proper spheres. Now, as proof of this, uh, Pope Galatius I, 500 years before Gregory VII, was known for his Two Swords Doctrine. In his famous letter to the Eastern Roman Emperor in 494, Galatius wrote, quote, For Christ, mindful of human frailty, regulated with an excellent disposition what pertained to the salvation of his people. Thus he distinguished between the offices of both powers according to their proper activities and separate dignities, wanting his people to be saved by healthful humility and not carried away by human pride, so that Christian emperors would need priests for attaining eternal life, and priests would avail themselves of imperial regulations in the conduct of temporal affairs. Now, continuing on, Galatius says, quote, Thus the humility of each order would be preserved, neither being exalted by the subservience of the other, and each profession would be especially fitted for its appropriate functions, unquote. According to Galatius, there is a distinction between spiritual and temporal authority, those being the two swords. And generally speaking, those individuals who provide spiritual authority should not be one in the same as those who wield secular authority. Another example of this effort to rein in secular control over church affairs was Pope Nicholas I in the 9th century. He too declared that Episcopal sees could not be filled without his permission. While he may have declared this as an official pronouncement, practically, though, as discussed earlier, it was not enforced on a regular basis. Now, Pope Leo IX, who we mentioned earlier, also sought to rein in such abuses, but also recognized that the clergy themselves needed to be reined in from their secular obligations and redirected towards their spiritual vocations. Sexual immorality among the clergy was acknowledged to be a problem with Leo, and with the aid of St. Peter Damien sought to rid the clerical ranks from sexual perversions. While not necessarily considered sexual perversion, Pope Leo also began to crack down on clerical marriage, which had managed to creep into the church despite prior prohibitions against priests being married. As we have discussed in prior episodes, so much of Western Christendom was built on the basic family unit as the foundational community. The family, of course, being solidified through the marriage of a husband and wife. Uh, these marriages would often carry with them feudal rights and obligations, just as secular lordships and bishop vassalage did as well. And because of these important secular obligations that marriage involved, 
It was believed that such marital bonds among clergy obstructed the church's ability to carry out her primary spiritual functions. Now, despite claims from revisionist historians and modernist theologians who claim the married priesthood was always part of the church, the reality is, is that while priests in the early church, and I'm talking about the first few hundred years, while they were married in many cases, they were not permitted to marry after their ordination. And if they were married, they were instructed to remain celibate and refrain from sexual relations with their wives after ordination, despite being married. And once again, the church be- once the church began to grow and spread with many more men seeking vocation as priests, it became the official practice or discipline of the church that priests could not be married. The first recorded prohibition on clerical celibacy was recorded in the year 300 A.D. at the Council of Elvira. So, it is clear that while priests up until the time of Leo IX in the 11th century would marry, this was a more or less of a disobedient deviation from the church's long-established prohibition against priestly marriage. It could best be considered as an abuse that Leo felt needed to be reformed and restored to its proper order. And while later Protestants would claim that reigning in clerical marriage was done for financial windfall and gains because family property, the priests would be turned over to the church, there simply is no substantial evidence to back this up. The clear reason for doing so was to disentangle priests from the married and secular life and follow the church's traditional discipline, which Leo believed would strengthen the church. And that really was was always uh, Leo's goal and subsequently Gregory VII's as well. It was about strengthening the church, both from within and without. And with this history in mind, Gregory VII felt not only justified, but empowered to reassert the rights of the church and remove various forms of corruption that creeped into church practice among both the laity and the clerics. But he didn't stop there. He even took it one step farther and declared the legal supremacy of the Pope over all Christians and church authority over secular rulers. And this meant for Gregory the right to depose secular rulers, even the emperor, if necessary. Now, all of this sets the stage for the inevitable conflict that took place between the new Pope Gregory VII and Henry IV of Germany, a successor to Charlemagne's empire, which would be known in, the, in history as the Holy Roman Empire. Henry claimed all the rights and privileges of his office, which included both secular and religious functions. For Henry, these functions were essentially one and the same, two sides of the same coin, and they cannot be divorced from each other. One of the emperor's customary duties up to this point was to approve of the election of the pope. Once Gregory was elevated to the papal throne, however, he quickly wrote a letter to Henry warning him not to approve the election. And the reason for this, of course, was that the pope did not need, in his mind, the approval of the emperor to hold his office. But Henry, nevertheless, through his agent to Rome, sent his approval of the election. It would be the last time a papal election was confirmed by the emperor, as previously mentioned. But despite Henry's transgression here and his efforts to send follow-up conciliatory letters of support for Gregory, Henry continued to exercise control of the Germanic churches, contrary to Gregory's desire for 
reform of such secular interference. Henry, for example, deposed several Saxon bishops after he suppressed Saxon uprisings and replaced them with men of his own choice. Unlike prior popes, Gregory was not going to take this insult to his authority or the church lightly, and declared at a 1075 synod of Rome that, quote, any person, even if he were emperor or king, who should confer an investiture in connection with any ecclesiastical office would be excommunicated, unquote. Excommunication, of course, was a grave punishment, an inducement to change one's ways, because Anyone excommunicated was deemed to be outside the church and therefore unable to receive especially the sacrament of Holy Communion. This had significant eternal implications. Gregory also dared to summon Henry to appear before him in Rome and answered an answer to him for his transgressions. Now, one does not simply summon an emperor to appear, but that's exactly what Gregory did. Henry, in turn, convened a council of his own supporters at Worms in January 1076, which naturally defended Henry against all the papal charges, accused the pontiff of most heinous crimes, and even declared Gregory deposed from the papacy. Well, this, you can, you can imagine, put Gregory well over the edge with his patience for Henry's insubordination, and proceeded to excommunicate Henry as threatened all along, along with all of his clerical supporters. And then he proceeded to release his subjects from their oath of allegiance to Henry. Now recall what a big deal oath-taking it was in the medieval period. So these were big steps Gregory was taking here against Henry. Gregory's action caused Henry and his supporters great consternation, gave the Saxons a legitimate reason to revolt against Henry, and calls for a new emperor began to be made. And ultimately, under this pressure, Henry decided to reconcile with Gregory. He traveled far through ice and snow over the Alps to seek forgiveness and do penance. And this pleased Gregory very much, and he agreed to remove the excommunication, but still insisted on Henry's submission to him. Now, whether Henry was being duplicitous with these acts of submission or simply he just changed his mind, by the time he got back to Germany, he refused to change his ways and just continued to act contrary to the Pope in matters of faith and church governance. So once again, Henry reimposed the ex uh, Gregory, I should say, reimposed the excommunication on Henry. But this time, Henry's followers began to abandon him, seeing him as a two-faced lout. So, under pressure once again, unlike the last time, Henry this time decided to dig his feet in, and even went so far as appointing a new anti-pope, who he declared was the real pope. Henry would even muster up a military force and march on Rome, forcing Gregory into exile. New efforts at reconciliation between Henry and Gregory at this point just failed. Gregory would end up dying in exile, but before doing so, he removed all excommunications that he imposed during the conflict with Henry, except, of course, the one on Henry himself. Gregory was said to have said at the time of his death, quote, I have loved justice and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile, unquote. 
While Gregory's end may have seemed sad, don't feel too bad for him. He would eventually be canonized as a saint in 1728 by Pope Benedict XIII and go down in history as one of the greatest popes for his reform efforts and desire to strengthen the rights of the church. His efforts to restore power and authority to the papacy, despite Henry's rebellion, remained remarkably successful, and his writings on church government remained an authoritative guiding document for future generations. Now, as for Henry, his battles continued with the newly elected Pope Urban II after Gregory's death. But unfortunately for Henry, his son rebelled against him and eventually imprisoned his own father. And like Gregory, he died in a state of sorrow and distress. Yet also like Gregory, who is remembered in history as a great champion of the papacy and papal rights, Henry has been remembered in history as well as a great champion of royal rights and of the Holy Roman Empire. So, where does all this leave us? Gregory is indeed remembered as one of the great papal saints of the church. And at the end of the day, after much struggle, he restored to the papacy the dignity, authority, and prestige that the church had always claimed, yet was never realized in the circumstances of the medieval world. After Gregory's death in 1085, the Pope's authority was established over the universal church. This concept of universality refers to the entire church, not just limited by any local geographic or political boundary. The Pope would preside over general councils of the bishops, of which any declarations concerning faith and morals were not considered infallible or preserved from error unless the Pope assented to them. The Pope served as the highest court of appeal for disputes within the church among laity and clergy. He recaptured the ultimate and sole right to select and invest bishops and apostolic sees, although it was not unusual for popes to still consult the most powerful monarchs when when doing so. But even the English crown under Henry I, who we will talk about more in the next episode, conceded that ultimately the Pope, it was the Pope who retained the sole authority to appoint bishops. In summary, in matters of faith and morals, the Pope reigned supreme over the whole of the Church. But in matters that also concerned lay monarchs and emperors, the Pope would often work together in conjunction with the secular authorities. This notion of separate but integrated efforts to benefit the common good of Christian society was about as close as one could get to implementing Pope Galatius's Two Swords Doctrine, at least in theory. As we will see, after Gregory, conflicts between spiritual and temporal authorities did not permanently cease. These efforts to maintain a well-balanced, integrated society among spiritual and temporal authorities would take different paths in both France and England. How this would play out on a practical level is what we will see as we approach our discussion on the Magna Carta in upcoming episodes. 